You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Hey, good morning, RCC fam. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. So good to see so many of your uh, covered faces. if you're watching online, just want to tell you we love you as well. Uh, we're in beginning stage three of our regathering, and uh, this is the first week where we've uh, gathered with the max capacity of 50 people, and uh, the registrations for our this gathering uh, filled up right away. So if you weren't able to register and be here in person with us because of the capacity, just want to tell you that we do miss you. Uh, some of you who are here, I haven't seen in six months, so praise God, I got to see you since the first time since March. So uh, good to see your face and give you a little elbow bump or a foot bump. Uh, So uh, this this is a unique season, uh, like Megan said earlier, and uh, we're we're trying to do church in unprecedented times. And uh, one of the things that we're going to start doing again, which we've always done, is communion. Um, And we're going to start that next week. Um, I... I was at a baseball game about a year ago, an Orioles game, when things were normal. And uh, I went with my pastor friend, Tony, and uh, we were sitting right in front of uh, two really drunk guys who were right behind us. And, you know, this guy was cheering the whole game. Not much to cheer about Orioles last year, but he was still (laughs) so buzzed. Like, he was just going for it. And uh, we we struck up conversation. We were laughing a lot. He was a pretty funny guy. And uh, he asked us, what what do you guys do for a living? And we were like, "Uh, we're pastors. And, of course, you get an amazing reaction every time a drunk person finds that out. Like, I've had a few drunk people ask me, what do you do for a living? Uh, a pastor. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like, they, they just realize, like, I, I cussed ten times and I'm buzzed right now. Uh, God hates me, apparently. No, no, God so loves you. Anyway, uh, the minute I told him I'm a pastor, you know what he said to me? He said, man, I love those Jesus cookies. <laughs> And I was like, I'm sorry, you love what? He said, I love those Jesus cookies. And I was like, what is a Jesus cookie? And he said, Holy Communion, bro. Oh, those Jesus cookies. I love communion. Well, here at RCC, we also love Jesus cookies. And so we're going to start taking it again every single week, like we always have, always do. Uh, The reason we take communion every week is because it's a physical reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we literally need the body of Christ symbolized by the bread and the blood of Christ symbolized by the cup taken on us to be made righteous before God. Uh, The communion has no obvious powers in itself. They represent the powers of Christ. And so uh, if you come here next week, you register and you're one of the 50 that's here, we'll have elements ready for you that are separated and uh, sanitized. Uh, We're not going to lice all the bread, but it's clean. Uh, And if you are going to be watching online next week, we encourage you to bring the elements with you and take them with us as we worship together. Obviously, that's not ideal. Obviously, it was intended to be a family meal in person, but God knows our hearts, and He knows we need the gospel, and so we're still going to take communion together as best we can, considering the times. So, um, communion is next week, and another thing that we do every week is focus on the Bible. Communion and Bible. That pretty much sums up RCC uh, Sundays. And this morning we're going to jump in 1 Samuel 25, the text Adam just read, and learn about the scriptures. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, man, what a great week for you to be here. Because the Bible is not only God's uh, revelatory word to you, but it's so practical for your life. It's so applicable for the things you're going on with right now. Particularly things like conflict, which we see in 1 Samuel 25. There is an intense battle going on. And God's word here prescribes to us, what do we do when we're not getting along? So let me just give you some context as we jump in. Uh, if you remember in chapter 24, last week, things were looking up for David. He was actually doing pretty well. He could have killed Saul, but he didn't. Remember King Saul is the king who's after David trying to end his life? And Saul seemed genuinely repentant for trying to kill David. 
it seemed like hmm, there might be some reconciliation between David and Saul. But in chapter 25, we see that's not the case. There was a glimmer of hope, but now it's stuffed out. And things get tough again for David. So the chapter begins in 25 with Israel's prophet Samuel dying. You guys remember Samuel? We started the book of 1 Samuel with Samuel. Makes sense, right? Samuel's a key figure for Israel in this time period. And he's a key figure for da David because Samuel was the prophet who anointed David as the next king. So Samuel was one of David's very few allies. Dead. Gone. And the text says that all, in verse 1, all Israel assembled to mourn for Samuel. And included in this mourning surely would have been David and his men. The spiritual leader of Israel is gone, David's ally is gone, and David is mourning. I'm sure if you, you've lost someone you love, it takes you a while to process that grief, right? You're probably not your, at your healthiest when you're processing through intense grief. David's not very healthy right now. And he doesn't have time to process his emotions and his grief because his life is still in danger. He clearly still doesn't feel safe around Saul because verse 1 also says he's still camping out in the wilderness. You don't live in the forest unless you're crazy or you're on a game show or you're running for your life. Which one do you think David is? He's not on the Netflix show alone. He is running and fleeing for his life from Saul. Saul is still trying to kill David. And so while David and his men are on the run from Saul in the wilderness, they need food. They need provisions. So what David would do, according to the text, is he would do contract work for rich farmers. He'd protect these rich farmers' big flocks, and in return, the farmers would give him food and his men food. What we find in this instance, David does business with this guy named Nabal, and Nabal's not a very good dude. He's entitled, he's rich, he's got snobby vibes, and he's doing very well. He has, it says, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. So David, I mean, Nabal owns a yacht. Nabal has a vacation home. His, Nabal's 401k has fully matured. And it says, the text says he's a Calebite, which means he's from a prestigious family. The Calebites founded David's home, uh, Bethlehem. So Nabal's entitled. Kind of a jerk. The text even says he's harsh and badly behaved. In fact, the name Habel itself in Hebrew literally means fool. It's a fool. God is making clear to us in the introduction of this chapter that you can be at the peak of human success and still in God's eyes be a fool. God looks at Fortune 500 CEOs who are jerks and harsh to their employees and he doesn't marvel at their innovation. Oh, what, what, an, what an innovator. What, a, what ingenuity. No. God looks at arrogant surgeons and, and doctors at the hospital who look down on nurses and are smug to them, and he isn't impressed with their intelligence. God looks at bully pastors with big churches who can preach the paint off the walls, and he isn't like, oh, man, they are great communicators. I'm so impressed. No, no, no. Nabal shows us that you can have all the skills and all the money and be at the top of your field, and God still look at, look at you and call you a fool. You see, the, the things that culture is telling you that you need to be happy, those things just really don't matter that much to God. He cares more here in 1 Samuel 25 about a man named David who's camping out in the forest, who's by all means a failure, and he's a dropout, and he's a story of wasted potential. That's the man after God's heart in the scene. Even Jesus himself, he was considered a loser. He didn't come to the earth on a throne. He was born in a barn next to sheep and goats and poop. 
He was a nobody from a nothing town, and even his own hometown, if you look at the Gospels, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. He was a loser to a lot of people. See, the categories we use to evaluate a well-lived life simply aren't the same categories God uses. On the last day, many nobodies now will be somebodies then. And many somebodies now will be nobodies then. Jesus said in his most famous sermon, those who are poor now will one day rule the kingdom of heaven. Those who have nothing now will one day inherit the entire earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness now will one day be given more than they can handle. For great is the reward in heaven for nobodies who are faithful to King Jesus. And even more and above all these accompanied blessings, if we're faithful, we get the thing we cherish most, Christ, the maker of the blessings. He's who we want. And so let me encourage you as we look at Nabal and David and just the beginning of this context, maybe you're not where you are with your career right now. Maybe you haven't progressed up the ladder as much as you'd like. Maybe you haven't accomplished as many things as you'd like to accomplish. Man, God says, that's okay. That's not the stuff I'm really focused on for you. God isn't looking at the number of sheep and goats you own. He cares about your heart. How's that doing? And the good news of the gospel is God says, here, surrender your heart to me. I'll, I'll do the fixing. I'll change it. You don't have to worry about it. Such good news in the gospel, isn't it? Just come to me and I'll do it all. So Nabal, this fool who was by all worldly categories, successful, sharp, he messed up in a lot of areas. One thing he did not mess up on was who he married. He married a good woman, a woman named Abigail. And the text describes Abigail as discerning and beautiful. So Sherry Mutasib. <laughs> we have a rocket scientist model here. And Nabal, though he did everything else wrong, he just married a good woman. A lot of guys here could say amen to that. And his wife, Abigail, this nobody woman, and women would have been degraded in the society. They have no value. They have nothing. They don't offer anything productive in first century Old Testament context. Or not first century, it's like eighth century, sorry. Uh, Abigail, this nobody, is going to be our hero. How cool is that that the nobodies are heroes in the Bible? We have a lot to learn from Abigail. She's going to be what we call a peacemaker. There, there's going to be a fierce conflict between Nabal and David, you know, the two so-called who's who of, of Israel, the, the, the men who have it all. They're not the heroes, they're the bumps. Abigail's the hero here. She's the peacemaker, and she's going to intercede and come to the rescue. So let's set the scene for the conflict and learn from Abigail. So remember, David's already on the edge. He's already struggling. He's not doing well. His mentor has just died. He, he, David thought he would get relief, but nope. King Saul's still after him. David has no idea where his next meal is coming from. So I want you to just combine all these factors in your head. How would you be doing? You're, somebody's, the king's still at, trying to kill you. You just lost a close friend, and you're hungry and tired. How's your state of mind? Not great. Kind of on the edge. Well, then David gets into business with Nabal, and he protects Nabal's flock from an enemy force. And it was customary when your military force protected the flock of a rich farmer, that rich farmer would pay you in rations from his excess. So David is expecting a paycheck. I provide a service for Nabal. Nabal provides payment. So David, what he does is he sends his men to collect that payment, and Nabal, upon receiving David's men, makes them wait, which is not a good sign. And then Nabal drops a bomb in verse 10. He says, if you have your Bible, look at 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? 
First of all, that's a lot of eyes, which is a bad sign. So what, you may not pick it up, but what's happening here is Nabal is roasting David. Roasting him. Like, uh, if you ever watch a rap battle and somebody says a line and everyone in the background is like, Oh, that is what's happening right here. Nabal says to David, and who knows, in Hebrew, he might have even rhymed it. It might have actually been a rap. We don't, we don't know. We can't. The commentators are still up in the air about this. Nabal says, who's David again? Do I know this guy? Like rubbing it in David's face, like, David, you were, you know, the anointed king. You defeated Goliath, this mighty warrior. Now you're living in the forest and everyone hates you. And then he adds, you know, I, 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 who's David? Because I've lost track of all these servants who stabbed their masters in the back. There's so many of them. Which one are you again? Oh, dang. So Nabal is twisting this fact that, that uh, he's reinforcing this false narrative that David betrayed King Saul, and that's why King Saul is trying to kill him. No, no, no. King Saul's crazy and threatened by David's anointing, and he wants to kill David. So Nabal knows who David is. They know their arrangement. They've done business together. And Nabal's just being a jerk, withholding payment, because though he's rich, he's greedy. And he doesn't want to pay David. So I want you to put yourself in this scene. Imagine if you worked a month at your job. And your employer was like, eh, not going to pay you for this month. What would you say? You would be hot. I mean, this conflict alone is enough to get anyone irate. You're not going to pay me? I just worked for you for a month. We don't know how long David worked for this guy, but it was probably a lengthy period of time. It's probably significant work. And add to this fact, not just the circumstances, not just the lack of payment, but in ancient Israel, to shame somebody publicly like this in a shame and honor culture would have been a declaration of war. To call me out in front of my men like this, oh, you're done. So David, after having lost a close friend, life already in jeopardy, not getting paid, he's hungry, he's tired. What does David do? Does he get a mediator? Does he try to negotiate? No, no, no. He loses it. Verse 13, David said to his men, every man strap on a sword. What do you think that means? Oh, it's going down tonight. Fists up. Let's ride. Verse 34 tells us that David rallied all of these men, not just to intimidate Nabal. It says that his intention was to kill every man in Nabal's household. So David is about to start a massacre that will kill many innocent lives. Not a very even-killed response, is it? And it's, it's so sad because last week, so much promise in David. He was so patient. The, the king who was trying to kill him was vulnerable right before him, and he restrains his men and himself. It doesn't kill Saul. This week, David needs to be restrained. And this is just your you know, quick reminder that I like to give you all the time that the heroes in these Bible stories aren't really the heroes. They're human beings. They mess up. They got sin like us. And sometimes they sin a lot worse than you and I do. Anybody else ever done a massacre or tried to do one? I hope not. And if you have, I'm glad you're here this morning. I need to talk to you about some good news in the gospel. We need some repentance to happen. See, this is again another example that the only hero in the Bible is Jesus. He's the only one we can look to. He's the only one who's perfect. He's the only one that stood in our place. And everyone in the Bible, including David, they point to him. And God's grace is so prevalent in David's life. Before David can do this horrible, horrible thing, kill every man in Nabal's household, God sends an intercessor from the house of Nabal. What grace? From the house of his enemy comes an intercessor. 
And it's a peacemaker named Abigail. And Abby is going to save her foolish husband, Nabal, and all the men in her house. And she's going to save David from one of the worst mistakes of his life. And uh, we're going to see three qualities of Abby that I think we should also embody as we embody in a life of peace as we enter into conflict in our day. So the first thing we see in Abby is that she's not interested in winning. Abigail is not interested in winning the conflict. Man, this is so relevant to us. I'm telling you right now, you got conflict, you guys are married, you got friends, you got roommates, you got coworkers. Abby is not interested in winning. Look at verse 18. Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. If I were David, I'd be like, you can leave the figs. I'll take everything else. <laughs> and laid them on donkeys. So Abigail, she quickly gathers all the provisions, all the payment for David without her husband's permission, which is a massive risk to her health and her safety because she's more interested in making peace than her family winning the conflict. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. First act, give him everything he wants because she can, they have it, and bow before David in reverence and honor. How many of us are doing that in conflict? You know, oftentimes in conflict, ego gets in our way, doesn't it? We'd rather win the argument, we'd rather look good, We'd rather look like the righteous person than actually establish peace. See, Abigail's more committed to peace than she is to her reputation. She's more interested in peace than she is interested in the outcome benefiting her. I'd rather lose all this stuff, look like the, the weak one, if it means peace is coming. So she goes before her husband's enemy and bows before him. So, friend, let me ask you, like Abigail, when you're in conflict, fighting with your loved one, fighting with your roommate or your coworker, are you more interested in winning or more interested in being right or more interested in bringing peace? I heard someone put it one time, you can be right or you can be happy. I'll choose happy. So does Abby. She thinks peace is a greater outcome than winning. And friends, Abigail is a foreshadowing for us of Christ, who, like Abigail, he humbled himself. He, he was okay to appear as the loser so that he could establish peace between us and God. The king of the universe forsook every title and power and strength and glory that he already had. He gave it all up to look like a loser so he could give us peace. He put on a mock robe. A crown of thorns was pressed upon his brow. He hung naked on a cross. People jeered him and said, if you're really God, take yourself off the cross. And Jesus watched as the little things that he breathed into existence called him a loser. What kept him going? How was he able to endure such shame and trial and hardship? Because Jesus is a peacemaker. And so, friends, we follow our Savior. We follow the model of Abigail. We approach conflicts humbly, willing to look like the loser, willing to take the fall where we can because we're so committed to establishing peace in the relationship. You know, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives some advice that your parents would probably disagree with, your friends would probably disagree with, but it's God's advice. He tells these two guys who are in severe conflict with one another, who are about to bring their issue to a, a secular court, he says, no, 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 what, what are y'all doing? 
You're about to bring this dispute to court? You guys are going to judge angels one day. You're going to rule the world one day, and you can't settle this tiny matter here on earth? But why not just rather be wronged? Why not just give up what you want to bless the other person? You ever gotten advice like that? Paul says, why? Because look at all that Christ has done. He has brought you both together as one person. You two are individual members of one body. And bodies work together as one. Sometimes one part of the body gives up for the other part. Could you imagine seeing me punching myself in the face really hard? Just like, bah, bah, bah. I would look like a crazy person. That kind of hurt a little bit. <laughs> That's how Christians look when they're fighting with one another. Two members of the body hitting each other. Ephesians 4, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This key verse, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A lot of ones because we're one. And he says, don't just hope for peace. Don't just wish for peace. We do whatever we can to establish and fight for peace, even if it means giving up what we want the most. Why? Because Christ has already made us one, and Christ has already done it for us in our place. You know, everyone knows John 3.16. Do you know 1 John 3.16? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Amen. So being a peacemaker means peace in the relationship matters more than the outcome of the conflict. Let me say that one more time. Peace in the relationship matters more than the outcome of the conflict. My first year of marriage would have been so much easier if I believed this. I wanted dishes done this way. I wanted to go to bed at this time. I wanted to go to this place on vacation. I wanted to win. Because I valued my way over peace. Brothers and sisters, we should be willing to lay down our life like Christ. Lay down our preferences. Lay down our dreams so we can establish peace with our brother, with our sister. Abigail models that for us. Secondly, not only is Abigail not interested in winning, secondly, she owns her failures. Oh, this is going to challenge some of us. It's going to challenge me. I really want you to zone in here because I think we have a lot to learn here. Would you agree that we are so hesitant to take blame in conflict? The minute somebody points out a flaw that you did in a situation, what's your instant reaction? No. Well, you. I mean, we see this almost every day in our lives or in other people's lives. Couples fight over whose fault it was that they were late. Brothers yell and point out who hit the other person first. Friends squabble over whose fault it was that they lost the game. Coworkers backstab and gossip about who's not really doing their work and the other person has to carry the load. Why do we spend so much time and so much energy swatting at these flies with sledgehammers? Why are our hearts and our minds so instantly engaged and our emotions so quickly surging with great vigor in our defense? And the answer is simple. It's because these issues to us are not minor and insignificant. They're a big deal. We defend that which we deem of great value. Let me say that one more time for you. We defend what we value. And we think in those arguments, in those tiffs, we are saving our life. We are saving our reputation. We believe something large will be lost if we do not use every means to defend ourselves. 
Our glory and our honor is at stake in this instance. If I don't point out that I've been misunderstood, I've been misquoted, I've been falsely accused, then others won't know that I'm right. And if I don't point out my rightness, then who will? I will be scorned and condemned in the eyes of others. Do you see the idol of self here? Do you see the desire for self-justification? And for the sake of our pride and out of foolishness, we are often willing to suffer a loss of friends, even loss of spouse, loss of loved ones, for the sake of honoring our own reputation and justifying ourselves. And some of that destruction comes in the form of a thin truce, a sort of cold war in relationship. We make a false peace with somebody. We pledge to each other to discuss only those things that have little significance to us. And we lay out landmines and threaten to explode in anger if somebody so much as raises a forbidden subject of my mistake or my error or my sin. And this is how churches split. This is how factions develop. We surround ourselves with yes men and women who only serve to tell us how wonderful we are who never challenge, advise, or criticize us. Yet while we go on defending ourselves against criticism, we find Abigail modeling something different for us. Just look at the countercultural response she has to this conflict. Verse 24, Abigail falls at David's feet, her husband's enemy, and says, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. On me alone be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Dang, that's kind of harsh. <laughs> Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So, get this. Abigail says to David, David, forgive me. It's my fault. I should have been more attentive. My, my husband is foolish, and I should have been more watchful to protect him from himself. To which you and I would say, what are you talking about, Abigail? Come on, girl, you did nothing wrong. You're sweet, discerning, and beautiful. Our inner lawyer comes, inner lawyer comes out in Abigail's defense and says, this is your husband's fault, his greed. It's his arrogance, not yours. This is David's fault. He's in a bad place and he has anger issues. Well, this scene is happening in a different context. We can't just read the Bible with our American Western view. We need to see it in the Eastern culture it was written in. See, in America, each individual is responsible for all of their own sins and problems. We live in a very individualistic society. But in Eastern culture, families took responsibility for the faults of their family members. If your child turns out to be a murderer, you take responsibility because you raised your child in an environment where they turned out to be a murderer. There's a collective responsibility in an Eastern culture. Abigail recognizes, man, I should have been more attentive. I should have paid more attention to my husband. It's on me. I should have interceded sooner. That is some crazy humility. In that situation, to focus on what you could have done better instead of zooming in on Nabal's problems and David's problems, she says, forgive me. All the guilt's on me. So how do you and I get to Abigail's level of humility and peacemaking? Where do we find this inner security to admit that we have fallen short and to shoulder the blame of a conflict, to say like Abigail says, on me alone be the guilt? The answer is through understanding, believing, and affirming all that God has said through the cross of Christ. That's your answer. Paul summed it up when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. A believer is one who identifies with all that God affirms and condemns in Christ's crucifixion. 
In Christ's crucifixion, God affirms Christ's complete righteousness, and He also condemns all of my sin. In Christ's cross, I am agreeing with God's judgment of me. I see myself as God sees me, a sinner. The cross has criticized and judged me more deeply, pervasively, and truly than anyone else ever could. At the cross, God lifts up His perfect Son in agony and says, This is what it costs to make you righteous. Therefore, when we are in conflict, when someone approaches us with a fault, even a fault we are so sensitive about, when someone has harsh criticism for us or shames us, we can simply say, yeah, and you're just seeing a fraction of it. It's much worse than you can even see. And nothing works better against finger pointing than to agree with the finger pointing. <laughs> Man, you have no idea how broken I really am. Even if the criticism and the blame is irrational, there are a lot of insane critics out there. We can still take it. Like Abigail. Like Jesus. I had a guy one time who I've never met. Uh, he posted a Google review on our church, public on the internet, anyone can see it. You guys know what I'm talking about. You click on a company or organization, they rate it, stars, five stars. He, he wrote one star. And this is what he commented. I find Pastor Adam Mutasib to be untrustworthy because I heard their parties screaming on the rooftop. And I can't trust a pastor who's a bad neighbor. My fingers had flames. I wanted to talk about, like, what rooftop parties? I've literally never had one. What are you talking about, crazy man? I've never screamed in my house once, let alone on my rooftop. And how is that even related to my trustworthiness? Oh, it's hot. I wanted to list out all the good neighborly things that I've done that you haven't seen, sir. <laughs> I just brought a candle to my new neighbor who moved in and said, welcome to the neighborhood, in your face. I brought cookies and dropped them off to everyone's house. Well, my wife did, but I was there. <laughs> and I wanted to interrogate this guy. Well, what have you done for the neighborhood, sir? <laughs> I am a good man. <laughs> Yeah, when does that ever work? <laughs> but even in criticisms like that, we can look at the cross. And we can agree, man, I'm far more sinful than you even know, bro. If you saw my heart, you'd see how bad of a neighbor I am. You have so much to criticize. Even more than you see right now. I have a lot of room to grow. Thanks for pointing that out. I'm going to focus on this kernel of truth. I won't say this to him, but I'll think this. I'm going to focus on the kernel of truth in what he said. And grow. And acknowledge. And own it. Because I don't need to defend myself. Christ already has. Bro, let me, brothers and sisters, let me tell you. The, <laughs> ooh, I'm going to feel it now. Uh, the vast majority of problems in your mind and in your life come from not believing the gospel. It comes, what are you not believing? What are you not trusting? God has already said. God has said, who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one. So what does it matter if a random dude on Google says? See, in, in believing in the cross, we are acknowledging that we are, by definition, sinners and failures. Let's just own that. It's what we are. 
That's what God says we are. And the cross, it doesn't just criticize us and judge us. It condemns us to eternal damnation. But at that same cross, we're also justified, friends. Through the sacrificial love of Christ, God justifies ungodly people. Read the book of Romans. I'll read our expert. Romans 3, God says this to you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one meets the standard. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not in you, not in your actions. In Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance and his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Amen. The cross not only declares... God's just verdict against me as a sinner, but his declaration of righteousness by grace through faith in Jesus. The cross of Christ reminds me that the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me, and because of this, God has thoroughly and forever accepted me in Christ. What a foundation to hold on to, even in the worst conflicts. Now I don't need to practice self-justification and blame shifting, but boasting, boasting about Christ's righteousness given to me. Like, can you believe? Yeah, I know you're right. I do suck in this area particularly. But can you believe Jesus died for me anyway? Despite how wicked I am. If you truly take this to heart, friend, the whole world can gather and stand against you and denounce you and criticize you, and you can simply reply, if God has justified me, who can condemn me? Amen. If God justifies, accepts, and will never forsake me, then why should I feel insecure? Why should I fear criticism? Why should I fear blame and conflict? Christ took my sins, I receive His Spirit, Christ takes my condemnation, gives me his righteousness. God says, you're good. Knowing this gospel, believing this gospel, it enables you to be a peacemaker. It enables you to shoulder the blame. It enables you to own what you should own. It enables you to establish peace. Abigail isn't interested in winning. She owns her failures. Last one. We've got to move quickly. Abigail cares more about the relationship than vengeance. So after taking this blame, after interceding for her husband, Abigail ends her big speech by saying this to David. Look at verse 31. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself, and the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Summary, this is what she's saying to David. David, if you do this, if you massacre all these people, many of whom are innocent, over this small dispute, it will haunt you the rest of your life. This mass killing is certainly not the Torah's permitted path of enacting vengeance. It's also obviously outside of God's will to enact a massacre. So Abigail is reminding him, is Nabal really worth it? Is it worth it to do such a terrible thing and to kill all these innocent people? And I think as we take... Abigail's reminder to heart. I think it'd be wise for us to count the cost in our relational conflicts. Like Abigail puts in perspective for David here, when we deal with somebody who cuts us in line, when we deal with somebody who's rude to us, like a waiter, or somebody who cuts us off at the highway, or a coworker who rolls their eyes at us, oh, I hate that. <laughs> Is it really worth sinning over? Is it really worth enacting vengeance? Is it worth responding poorly, making a scene? Abigail pleads to David, man, it's not worth it, David. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who sadly died last week, this week, um, a lot of people are mourning her, her loss. She was a pioneer of, of law in our country. Uh, I believe she was the first uh, woman Supreme Court, Supreme Court Justice and. 
I, I listened to her give a talk, and she said, do you want to know the best device I've ever heard in my life? And when RBG says that, you know, okay, I want to hear your best device you've ever heard. And she said, well, my mother-in-law on my wedding day pulled me aside, and she said, uh, Ruth, can I give you some advice on marriage? And Ruth said, of course, I, I love your advice. And Ruth's mother-in-law said, it helps every now and then to have a deaf ear. It helps every now and then to have a deaf ear. When an unkind or thoughtless word is spoken, just tune it out. You didn't hear it. And, you know, frail old Ruth, who's, I believe, like in her 90s when she said this, she says, I followed that advice for 56 years of marriage, and it served me well. And I've even had to enact it with many of my colleagues. <laughs> Sometimes we give some grace, and we have a deaf ear. We let some things go. So like Abigail advises David, like RBG advises us, are you able to let things go? Bad business deals, slights, mean jokes, rolled eyes? Or <laughs> can someone not mess up around you? Proverbs 17.9 says, Overlook an offense and bond a friendship. Fasten on to a slight. Goodbye, friend. I love what Henry Cloud, Dr. Henry Cloud says. He says, the next moment you find yourself instantly reacting, just stop, take a minute, ask yourself, is this really worth the amount of emotion and reactivity I am feeling? Is it that big a deal? Breathe. Right-size your stress amperage and experience the freedom that self-control offers. God's people are called to let some things go for the sake of our witness, for the sake of our relationships. And we do this because of Christ, who didn't just look past our minor offenses. He paid for all of them. He knew them all. He paid for them all, even the big ones, so that he could be our friend. And final thought on this point just to be clear, Abigail is not telling David, just let it go and forget about it and pretend it ever happened. Really what she's saying is, when you overlook an offense, you're not saying it didn't happen. You're not ignoring how it made you feel. But you're putting it in perspective. You're taking a step back to humbly consider your own desperate need for God's grace. And forgiving an offense that has already been forgiven by Christ anyway. If that person who has offended and slighted you is in Christ, Jesus paid for it fully on the cross. Justice was done there. And if they're not in Christ, if they're not a follower of God, like Nabal, as Ab Abigail says later, vengeance belongs to the Lord. The Lord will enact vengeance for you. And that's what happens. David eventually thanks Abigail for this great advice, doesn't enact on the massacre, and does not enact on his own vengeance. Verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. God's in control. He takes care of the vengeance. I hope your enemies don't get struck and died, but maybe, you know, a little slap every now and then. <laughs> vengeance belongs to God. Abigail is a peacemaker because, number one, she is not interested in winning. Number two, she owns her failures. And number three, she cares more about the relationship than she does about vengeance. And so as we close, we recognize that David was about to make a life-changing mistake here. To mass murder a family. And Abigail, the peacemaker, steps in to bring peace into the conflict. And afterwards... In verse 32, David praises God for sending Abigail as a peacemaker to intercede before the destruction. And though you and I obviously can't thank Abigail, she hasn't interceded in any of our conflicts, we can still praise God for sending us an even better intercessor than Abigail. One who is even more beautiful and more discerning than Abigail. A true and better Abigail. A man named Jesus. See, like Nabal, 
You and I have wronged God. Much worse than Nabal did to David. And even, even though, out of his own grace, God has provided for us and protected us and established this world for us, we still have spurned him and insulted him. And we've refused to yield to his kingly authority. And unlike David, God, the king of the universe, has every right to enact vengeance upon us, to lay us down. We are his creation, we are wicked, and he is righteous. Instead, he didn't send a warrior, he sent a peacemaker. And rather than condemning us, Jesus stood in our place, like Abigail did. He took the blame when we should have taken the blame. And he brought peace between us and God. You see, Jesus is the ultimate Abigail. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He stands in the gap for us. And it's only through him we are given peace with God. And so, friends, as we enter into our conflicts today, hopefully not today, but in the future, like Christ, we're ready to make peace. We're ready to shoulder the blame. We're ready to mine the gap. Because we follow the great peacemaker. And if you're not in Christ and you're in conflict today, you're struggling, you need some peace, come to Christ. He offers vertical restoration and relationship with God and will teach you how to have horizontal reconciliation in your conflict with others. So let's go to Christ this morning and thank Him for being our peacemaker. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.